Welcome to the 381st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed last week's podcast. Um, You're not going to get all the cool music that you had last week or all the fancy, fun interviews from all those great runners. You have to put up with me tonight, but um, I think I can make it fun. My mother used to ask me before I record the podcast, she'd say, the diva, so what are you going to talk about tonight? And, you know, I usually have some running stories, and I try to review the literature, what's coming up on the week, and what's happened in, in the office, or that I've come across, you know, and it, sometimes it's, it's more exciting than others. Um, and I was kind of struggling a little bit until my mother went out and got the mail. And I got kind of hate mail from my dentist. And I was so excited because I finally had something really fun to talk about. And uh, um, so I went to the dentist this week. And just a little background on my dental health. I had a couple really tiny cavities when I was about eight that my dentist, who was my also my little league coach, um, filled without even Novocaine, they were so minor. And I've not had any cavities since. I've had braces and, you know, I've um, got my teeth cleaned regularly for the most part, even through COVID when they came back, you know. And um, I had a great dentist across the street from my office. And, you know, we kind of had an understanding that I was that quirky doctor across the street, that quirky cardiologist that didn't like unnecessary testing. And so they would clean my teeth and things looked good and said, listen, if you need anything, call me. And it was great. I'd send them patients. I sent them my mother uh, because he was a great dentist because he did things that needed to be done, but he didn't do things that didn't need to be done. Well, lo and behold, he decided to retire and he sold his practice. So I went across the street to the new dentist this week, and the dental hygienist sat me down, and they had me fill out a new health questionnaire. And of course, I checked no, 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 no to any health conditions, no, 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 no to any medications, no, 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 no to any complaints about my mouth or anything going on there. And of course, nobody asked me if I ate a plant-based diet or, you know, what my health was like, you know, as far as my nutritional, there was no nutritional history at all. And the hygienist came and got me and sat me down in the chair and proceeded to get ready to do x-rays on me. And it's like, "Um, no, thank you. Well, you're due. And it's like, well, no, I don't have any problems. Um, And there's never been, you know, it's like there's nothing in my mouth that hurts and chances of something killing me or making the quality of my life less um, in the near future is pretty nil, so I respectfully decline. Well, that's not the way we do it here. And I was like, I'll have to go see, talk to the new dentist to see if you you can even stay in the chair. So I was left in the chair for 15 or 20 minutes, and finally the new dentist come back to introduce himself for the first time, and he said, I understand that you're declining x-rays. I said, yes, I don't have any issues. And I said, you know, American Dental Association says they're used to diagnose a problem, and I don't have any problems. Well, we could find something maybe. And it's like, but I don't have anything, and I'm quite 
content with my decision that if I were to have something, I would, you know, then I would take care of it. And um, even if it was something that maybe, you know, needed more work because I waited, I'm, I'm okay with that. So, you know, I have my full consent that I'm, I decline x-rays. I've had a lot of radiation as a cardiologist taking care of other people in my lifetime. I, I, I really want to limit my future radiation as much as I possibly can. Well, he didn't like that. Um, and he said, and I said, further all, you've never examined me. Um, so, you know, uh, the question is, if you look on the website, American Dental Association, you know, an x-ray is done after an examination, and I hadn't had an examination. I just sat down in the chair and, and had told them that there was no problems. So he said, well, can I examine your mouth? And, of course, I said, sure, and he did, and, of course, there wasn't any problems. So he said, well, would you be agreeable to a negotiation in a couple of years to have x-rays? And it's like, I don't know. Depends if something's going on. And I said, well, do you want to have your teeth cleaned today? I said, yeah, I'd love to have my teeth cleaned today. So he left the room, and the dental hygienist proceeded to tell me how I was missing an opportunity to find something proactively. And it's like, I decline radiation, and I don't believe in doing something unless... I'm going to do something differently with the outcome, and I don't have any symptoms. So therefore, a procedure, I probably wouldn't agree to any procedure because I don't have any symptoms. Uh, and it's certainly not going to kill me. I don't have an infection, a white count, or anything else. My teeth aren't loose. And so she wasn't very happy about it, and I, I got kind of a cursory um, cleaning, but it was all right because I do a pretty good job on my own. And today I got a letter, and it um, told me, you know, basically what I said that I would do. And they said, you know, well, he summarized what the American Dental Association, and he sent me um, the FDA dental radiographic examinations recommended for patient selection and limiting radiation exposure. The American Dental Association revised 2012 Council on Scientific Affairs, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Public Health Service, Food and Drug Administration. So we know how good those people are most of the time. But when you turn to the page where he had highlighted for me, because I probably couldn't read it myself, on recommendations for prescribing dental radi radiographs, the part that he didn't highlight was the part that I will read to you. These recommendations are subject to clinical judgment and may not apply to every patient. They are to be used by dentists only after reviewing the patient's health history and completing a clinical examination. Even though radiation exposure from dental radiation is low, once a decision is made to obtain radiation, radiographs is made, it is the dentist's responsibility to follow the ALARA principle as low as reasonably achievable radiation to minimize the patient's exposure. So, even the American Dental Association agrees that you should be examined before a test is performed and that you should limit one's radiation at all cost using clinical, sound clinical judgment. And even if you go down to patient recall with no caries and not at all increased risk, if you are going to do x-rays, you should limit them to the posterior bite wing exam every 24 to 36 month intervals. So it's certainly not dental x-rays every year or even every other year in all patients that come into a dentist's office prior to any examination. 
And there was actually a study performed that in up to 85% of dentist office, x-rays are performed without a clinical examination first. So it would be like me recommending a stress test for a patient without ever having seen them that I would subject a patient to a stress test and the radiation associated with a nuclear stress test without ever having examined them and assessed their pre-test probability or the risk of the procedure in them. The either funnier part is the last sentence. It is my hope that you continue to have me serve your needs establish a relationship with a new doctor can be uncomfortable. And the last sentence, I hope you received and enjoyed the edible fruit arrangement I sent your office in December. Well, I didn't receive any fruit arrangement, and had I, it would not make me any more likely to get x-rays done at my new dentist. And in all fairness to my dentist, it's hard to find a dentist that doesn't want to x-ray people every one to two years, just like it's hard to find a vet that doesn't want to give vaccines every one to two years, and other doctors that don't want to give vaccines and x-rays and everything to look for the possibility of finding something. Some physicians will do chest x-rays on adults, and it's never been shown, even in smokers, that doing chest x-rays can find a cancer before, you know, that where it's not going to hurt them or early, you know, an early treatment that it does not save lives. So even if we could diagnose something early, it is rarely proven that diagnosing it early actually makes a difference in longevity. And in fact, in some instances, it makes someone a patient or subjects them to harm at an earlier time point than it would have had it been detected later. So it's just not black and white that if we look everywhere for everything and scan people from head to toe, that we're going to find something that we allow them to live forever. I had a request um, from a patient today that was going to get an executive physical uh, at a place where they're going to look at his um, every bad gene that they can find or any, any possible bad genes that he might have. They're going to do MRI and CAT scans and blood work and try to find something and look for uh, abnormal DNA in his blood so that they can find something uh, perhaps that will, uh, the idea is to improve longevity. To date, there have never been studies looking at any of these things that's going to improve longevity in an individual. So we can look and try to find and prod and poke and try to find something early, but for the most part, we are going to turn over rocks that may cause more harm than good do treatments that may diagnose early, may cause damage, may cause side effects with little improvement in overall quality of life or quantity of life. I believe in a physical examination to make sure there aren't abnormal heart sounds, lung sounds are good, the back of the eye to look at vascular changes, um, look for masses, prod and pope, a large liver, and large spleen, mobility, range of motion. Those are all good things, but we can do something perhaps to change one's, change the outcome on them. But when it comes to doing procedures that have risks associated with them, we have to stop and look at the pretest probability before we go ahead and do things. 
that could potentially hurt people. And some of those things, again, even come down to the psychological consequences of waiting for a result of a test or biopsy. Because as many people know, waiting for a biopsy for weeks and weeks and weeks, the risk, you know, the, the anguish associated with that, it's not improving your quality of life. So again, you know, before you start turning over rocks to try to figure out, you know, to find something early, perhaps you might be better off looking at what can you do to decrease your risk of having something develop. And yes, I'm going to have to find a new dentist. On the flip side, I was reading an article in Ultra Running Magazine that interviewed um, a guy that I followed. And if you haven't, if you're a runner um, or have a little interest in, in what crazy runners do, there's a really good documentary called The Barkley Marathon. And this marathon was the brainchild of a man named Gary Cantrell in Tennessee. Uh, he um, is quite an interesting fellow. And this article was about um, you know, his life to some degree. Um, and they interviewed him because the Barkley Marathon had just occurred. And he, um, you know, he was the underdog um, on the track team and the underdog uh, in a lot of things, but a thinker and a ponderer. And the article that he wrote for Ultra Running Magazine talked about intangibles. And when you're training for an ultra marathon, which is ultra marathon is anything greater than 26.2 miles. So it becomes a bit of a head game. You know, bad things happen during a marathon. Bad things are almost certain to happen once you start going further than 26.2 miles. Bad things meaning, you know, problems with nutrition, problems with weather, problems with blisters, you know, aches and pains, potential injuries, getting lost. There's all kinds of things that can happen um, that make people quit before they finish those further distances, which could be 50K, 100K, uh, 50 miles, 100 miles. Some of them are 24-hour races. Some of them, as I had Harvey on, it could be 354 miles, last man standing races. So these things are very long. And, and although they are physical challenges that are paramount, they're also mental challenges because, again, once your mind starts saying, like Nick Willard said last week, if you think you can't, you can't. Um, once you start having more and more negative thoughts, uh, more and more doubt, it becomes more likely that you'll pull the plug and stop. And so he talked about these things that are intangibles, how to train for the unknown, how to, you know, we train for a race plan and you run up so many miles before you run a certain distance and you train and you have a plan and you plan your nutrition. And we plan all these things, but things happen during a race that aren't planned. And so how do you train for these intangible things? And he suggested... Um, is to do a walking journey. And that was how he trained, you know, and walking, you know, he walked across America at one point, uh, you know, doing really long walks, carrying as little as you can. And one of the examples he gave that, you know, if you were going to just pick up and walk 50 miles or a hundred miles, you might say, or two days, you may pack a lot more than you really need. And the weight of the pack might be, you know, excessive. And as you go, you may eliminate things because you don't need as much. And then you realize there's a lot of things you don't need. 
there's probably some things you do need and you don't have, um, but you learn from these experiences. You learn these intangible lessons on what's the minimal amount of things that you need and what, how you react to certain environmental problems or physical problems that you run into. And so I like to look at that from a perspective of nutrition and health. Um, and I'll say plant-based nutrition and overall improving your health from lifestyle diseases. There's no shortage of books, plant-based nutrition books, how to join our club, do this, do that. Um, 12 weeks to a great body, Weight Watchers, weight loss. There's, you know, there's, there's zillions of ways that people can give you pamphlets. Unfortunately, in the hospital, um, when there's a dietary consult, or even even um, dietitians that are you know work for offices that bill insurance, they get 15 minutes with the patient, so they basically give handouts, you know, one size fits all handouts, and they rarely work. People get a four or five page handout on your diabetes or your kidney disease or your cancer, and you know, it's maybe they put it on the refrigerator for a little bit, but then it gets, or maybe it's laid on the table and, and then it gets shuffled off with the rest of the papers. You can't follow it. You have no idea what it is. It's kind of like eat healthy and exercise. What do you do with that? Um, even if people give you strict menus on what to eat when, um, it becomes, you know, most people rarely follow them. We've given lots of menus out and lots of suggestions and, you know, we give a folder out and sometimes the folder never gets out of the car even. So obviously that's not the answer um, to changing your nutrition to, to being plant-based. Uh, there are intangibles um, that need to be trained in order to make this work and this lifestyle work. And some of the intangibles you don't even know until you go on the journey becoming plant-based. You know, so if you've never went into a restaurant and tried to order plant-based without oil, what do you do? You know, if you don't cook, then you don't know ingredients that are typically in foods that might not be what you need. Um, people don't realize how much sodium are in a lot of things. The nutrition labels, they look like they're fairly simple, but... Really, there is a disguise to make them not quite as easily interpretable. The grams and volumes and weights and volumes are mixed up so in serving size, and so you're not sure exactly what you're getting. And I will tell you from a lot of years of experience, what people perceive as a serving size or perceive as a tablespoon or a teaspoon is not, you know, not necessarily accurate. So these intangibles, you know, can get really muddy along the way. And so, again, you don't realize what mess that you've just stepped into until you start to do it. Will your friends ask you out? Will you ever be able to socialize? What do you do when you go on vacation? You know, if you're in some place you've never been before, what kind of hotel foods? You know, can you ask for it on an airplane? I had somebody ask me, you know, or they went on an international flight and they ordered kosher thinking that it was a better thing because there wasn't vegetarian or vegan. So they thought that they'd order kosher. Of course, it was awful. It wasn't even close to being plant-based or anything that they could eat. What do you prepare for? How do you take food with you? What lasts? What doesn't last? Um, and so these are intangibles that, that need to be trained, but probably the biggest intangible that needs to be trained is mindset. Because if the negative thoughts... Again, by any of those 
sequences that I named above, you know, three or four of those things happen to you, and it's like, this is just not worth it. It's just too hard. You know, I, it, there's nobody does this. It can't happen. It can't work. People don't eat this way. How can you survive? I'm probably not getting enough protein. I don't know. Am I going to get enough calcium? People say I have osteoporosis. What's going to happen? Um, and the next thing you know, you're back to your old ways. So it's training these intangibles um, through education and more education and listening to different podcasts and talking to different people and asking questions. I always tell people if you ask somebody a question and they can't answer you or they're irritated by the question, then you probably are talking to the wrong person. So just like my dentist who was not willing to have a discussion on um, pretest probability, then it's probably I'm in the wrong place. So we need to be able to ask questions and then, you know, work on our intangibles and become more prepared. Once you've gone to a few restaurants, you know where you can go and get food on easy. So, you know, if you have a few go-tos and you're traveling, you can look for them. We look for Thai. You know, Outback Steakhouse is a great place to go if you're plant-based because you can get a big potato, steamed vegetables, and a salad. You know, that would be the last place most people that are just becoming plant-based would see that you go. On the other hand, somebody that really likes steak might not be that might not be the place for them because they might just crumble when they got in there and they smelled the steak. So it depends on your mindset and training that mindset before you go into that place. So maybe you have to go someplace that you don't have a lot of choices early on so that you don't make the wrong choice. Or training to look at restaurants before you go to the restaurant so you know what it is and you prepare yourself. This is what I'm going to order. And you tell somebody, this is what I'm going to order when I get there so you know what it is. And have a backup. You know, what if they're out of that? What are you going to do? Um, and if it makes life much more easy and acceptable and the bumps in the road are easier to deal with, the more intangibles that you've come across and the more you've dealt with it. I don't worry about finding food. I can find places, food anywhere. It may not be what I necessarily want, but it can work till I get to a spot. In worst case scenario, if I had to fast and just do water for a couple of days, that would be okay too. So I'm okay with, you know, the worst case scenario. And then everything gets better from there. Probably one of the biggest tangibles to overcome early on is it's okay once in a while. Or it's okay if I just do it in moderation. Because there's no way to actually measure those two statements either. Once in a while means you have to remember when the last time was and nobody really keeps score. So you can, you know, we all end up remembering the good, the good things. And then in moderation, I don't know what that is either. I have no idea what the serving size is of moderation. That's something that we make up between our ears. Is moderation the same as it was when you were 20? Um, is it the same as when you had a bad experience? So it, that, that, that's an intangible that, that continuously changes. I watched a television program. I like this show called This Is Us. Um, one of the things I like about it is based in Pittsburgh. So there's some references back into the 70s in Pittsburgh where the Steelers were, and it's a team that I liked when I was um, when young. But they had on this particular episode... It was about Thanksgiving and a special pie. It was called a sugar pie um, that the mother made 
and she left out one ingredient so her daughter wouldn't know exactly how to make it. It was a secret ingredient. And so the idea was they passed that secret ingredient, that pie with a secret ingredient down from generation to generation. So it was something special that her mom made, that she made, that you know, that you could pass down. And that pie was with butter. You know, they showed them making it with like, you know, lots of sugar and chunk, chunking up cubes of butter to put in the pie crust that was made with oil. So it was just, you know, you could just, I don't know if something like that even exists. I didn't look it up, but it seemed awful. And one of the things that was, um, one of the, it was associated with is one of the characters is morbidly obese. And she, they, they played back to her mother and her mother. And so her mother, so the grandmother would have been um, making this sugar pie for Thanksgiving, but then not eating any or eating just a sliver. And she gave her daughter just a sliver. So she was training her that this is a great thing to have, but you can only have a little because as women, we need to watch our figures. And then fast forward, the next generation was morbidly obese and she would, you know, um, try to hide and eat and all the things associated with um, potentially an eating disorder, eating for feelings. So the daughter that was morbidly obese, her father had died suddenly in the way the story goes. And so uh, she was the youngest, she was one of, uh, she was a triplet, so, and the only girl. And there were, you know, she didn't go to college, so she had all these other um, emotional um, issues that, you know, food became her outlet, is the way the story portrays. And um, then she was feeding her son and daughter this sugar pie, and her husband, who was obese and had lost weight, said, you know, you can't, you shouldn't do that because, you know, our kids have our genes and we have to watch. And she became very defensive, and it was like fat shaming, and, you know, so they have to eat in moderate, they have to, they have to be able to have these things in moderation. And, you know, I think that, you know, when I was watching it, um, it's a pretty slippery slope. When we eat very high sugar comfort foods, we get a rise in dopamine and serotonin, which are feel-good hormones, like, you know, the rise, the bump we get in adrenaline with cocaine or or any other kind of, you know... um, opioid or anything, we get this rise in good neurotransmitters, this feel-good, short-lived, very high spike that's unlike any other thing natural. They have never shown with depression an association being able to measure someone's dopamine and serotonin saying they have a deficiency or an abnormality. We all have spikes in dopamine and serotonin when we eat something sugary or we have a, a great experience. That's a neurotransmitter. Antidepressants change the receptor, the serotonin receptor uptake blockers that are given to people thought to change the chemistry, and that's what helps the medicine work in depression. It's never been shown that you can measure a change and show an improvement or it fixes depression. But nevertheless, when we give something, somebody sugary something, they get this bump and feel good, and that bump and feel good neurotransmitters is nothing is so much more than the bump and feel good of an apple or a banana or green beans or something like that. And so we associate those things with feel good, um, comfort foods, eat my feelings, make me feel better. But it's all twisted to some degree 
and that if we take them away, then we're taking away pleasure. So the thought of not giving her children the sugar pie was like not allowing her child to be exposed to the happiness associated with eating some of these very high um, you know, neurotransmitter-inducing type foods. And if they learn to eat it in moderation, then it would be okay. And I think that's, you know, I mean, that's the slippery slope that we have went down, and that's where all marketing heads towards is that we all deserve to be happy. None of us deserve to be shamed. Eat a little bit of this in moderation, and it'll be okay. Even the majority of dietitians will say, just eat in moderation, eat a little bit of this, and you'll be okay. But the bottom line is that these unnatural processed foods are nothing like natural foods, and our body doesn't know how to handle them. And once you've tasted and got hooked, so to speak, on these big bursts of dopamine and serotonin and other feel-good neurotransmitters, the rest of the stuff seems like perhaps a penalty or not being comforting enough. And so we turn to those things as comfort as opposed to some other means of handling uh, a situation or, or feeling or celebration or whatever it is that we turn to when we have some of these comfort foods. And again, I think it comes back to training intangibles when we come down to plant-based nutrition and that we recognize that these foods can cause giant spikes in neurotransmitters, these processed foods, but that's not a natural thing. And that's not something that we need, and that's not something that we need to be happy or to avoid depression or to avoid feeling bad. But we need to be able to identify why perhaps we're feeling bad and, and identify what we can do in other ways to, to change how, how we are. So um, I, I just thought that that all kind of, you know, went together um, pretty well as far as it's not, it's certainly not easy. And it's certainly not something that you just, oh, it's in the book. You just follow this direction and, and it's easy. It's something that we have to train. So just like we're trained for a marathon or an ultra marathon, you have to train your nutrition as well. Some of us grew up in better households than others. Uh, when people come to me and they've been lifelong cooks, then it's easier for them to change than people that have never been in the kitchen. I have a fellow that is, his wife did all the cooking and she had a stroke and now he's trying to do the cooking. He doesn't want to use a microwave. He doesn't know how to use the oven and he's left with a skillet on the stove that he really doesn't know how to use either. And so it makes things much more difficult because he has no idea how to prepare things even if he wanted to. So we're starting from square one, literally. Other people were very good at cooking and it's, and it's, it's just a challenge to make things and to use different spices and to use different recipes, but it's something that they can embrace and they just have to change their training a little bit. So it varies a lot from person to person and you have to kind of accept where you are and train from where you are. Last week we had people that started from ground zero to train for a half marathon and they did it. Today I had somebody said, you know, I felt so bad because, you know, these people were sick and they overcame sickness and they trained for this marathon, a half marathon, and, you know, I'm not there. But you have to train for where you are and find out where you are. And then we assess the situation and we start change, training the intangibles. 
there are a lot of people that have younger family members that say, well, you know, you're older, you know, you're 50 or 60 and, you know, it's okay for you because, you know, you're getting up there and bad things are going to start happening, but I don't need to do this. Well, to answer their question, there was a study done recently in the Journal of Med and published in the Journal of American Medical Association, and they actually looked at um, people and their baseline weight at 40 and then what happened later in life. And looking at 29,621 adults, and they were overweight, um, and they divided them into class one, class two obesity versus a normal body mass index at age 45. And they looked at a morbidity score and a healthcare cost. And as you would expect, um, the more overweight that you are at 40, the worse health score you will have in later life and the more healthcare cost and, and comorbidities. Doesn't seem like rocket science. Um, to, to come up with that any more than um, people that eat more fiber. Uh, there was a Japanese study looking at people that um, ate, more in, ate more soluble fiber. Soluble fiber means it dissolves from water and forms a gel, feeds your good bacteria versus insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber sources would, would be um, oats, fruits, beans, barley, carrots, broccoli. Um, the more soluble fiber that you ate, the decrease in dementia. Um, and, you know, associated, again, not really a no-brainer. Um, increased fiber, decreased diabetes, decreased cholesterol, um, better gut health, better gut health, better gut-brain access, uh, perhaps decrease in amyloid and, and plaques in the brain. Um, so they did, they did better. Uh, they didn't do any MRIs or anything, but overall, as far as looking back and looking forward, dementia was much less in people that ate more fiber. So if your body mass index at 40 is normal and you eat a high-fiber plant-based diet, chances are you're going to do better when you get older. Um, I guess a 40-year-old could come back and tell me that maybe if I had got dental x-rays, I wouldn't have an abscess at 80. Um, I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think there's any studies that go along with that. But um, the reality of it is what we do now does count later. Um, if you have gestational diabetes, um, preeclampsia, there is an increased risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease later in life. There is an increased risk of diabetes in the child. So at any age, our health does matter and it carries forward. If you're an obese child, uh, the risk of diabetes increases, the risk of hypertension increases. The more you are exposed to increased metabolic waste and toxic metabolites, the increased risk that you have of cancer and other inflammatory conditions. So it does matter what we do at every age, um, starting with uh, ground zero. So the more you can do that and for your family, for yourself and your children, the better they will be later on. I always say the best gift that I ever didn't know I gave my daughter was becoming plant-based when she was in high school because she's had a long time of being plant-based and she has given even a bigger gift to her child being plant-based since he was baby, since he was conceived. So I think that the 
metabolic waste that, that's accumulated is much less uh, over time, and it slows down the aging process. So rather than trying to test and diagnose and treat with procedures and pills to prolong life, I think we should start from square one and be very conscious about what we eat and how we move to improve every day the best that we can. So on this St. Patrick's Day, I'd like to read an Irish blessing. May you always have work for your hands to do. May your pockets hold always a coin or two. May the sun shine bright on your window pane. May the rainbow be certain to follow each rain. May the hand of a friend always be near you. And may God fill your heart with gladness to cheer you. Unknown Irish blessing. Thank you for listening. Eat your cabbage. Thank you.